Isaiah chapter 40. Let me just start by reading the first couple verses, and you'll get a catch for the tone here. Comfort, yes, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, the previous 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah certainly had passages of comfort and hope. We've seen some very dramatic promises of the coming Messiah and of his great work in the previous chapters of the book of Isaiah. But there's no denying that for, through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there's a strong tone of judgment and warning throughout the section. It's, the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. You need to get ready, you need to get right. You need to trust in God instead of trusting in the Egyptians or anything else. But now, beginning with Isaiah chapter 40, the tone shifts. Now it's predominantly full of comfort and blessing. And more than anything, as you're going to see in tonight's chapter, and as we make our way through the rest of the book of Isaiah, the glory of God is all over these chapters. I want you to remember in your mind where Isaiah chapter 39 just ended. It was with King Hezekiah, and he received a visitation from some Babylonian envoys or ambassadors. And as he entertained these ambassadors from Babylon... He got proud. He let it puff up his head that these important people were visiting him. And he shows them all the treasures of the house of God, all the royal treasures of the line of Hezekiah. And as he did that, his heart was lifted up even more with pride. And later the prophet Isaiah rebuked him and he said, you know, these Babylonians visited you. You know what you were doing? You were showing them the stuff that they're later on going to carry away. Now, it was going to happen some 100 years after the time that Isaiah made the prophecy. But I want you to see how incredibly discouraging this might have been for the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Because at the time Isaiah made this prophecy, the huge threat was not from Babylon. The huge threat was from the empire of the Assyrians. And God told the people of Judah that they were barely going to escape. They were barely going to be delivered from this huge empire, the Assyrians, that was going to come upon them. And now they hear, yeah, but later on you're going to get conquered by the Babylonians. That could discourage some people, don't you think? You're going to receive a remarkable deliverance from this group, but God's telling you, in not too many years distant, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to be carried off into exile. Your nation is going to cease to exist because of the Babylonians. Well, if it was hard for Judah to celebrate the downfall of Assyria, when everybody knew that a more powerful invader was on the way, yet God wants his people to be comforted. And now... If he fast-forwarded to the attack on Jerusalem from the Babylonian Empire, now he's going to fast-forward even more to the time when they are delivered from the Babylonians and allowed to come back from the exile. So the word goes out, comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Hey, it's so precious. Isaiah knew what it was to warn and instruct God's people, but the Lord also wanted his people to receive his comfort. What a precious ministry that is among God's people today, isn't it? Just bringing people comfort in the name of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 speaks of our Lord as the God of all comfort. God wants his messengers to speak comfort to his people. I think about it tonight. You know, I'm looking out 
upon all of you. And here you are, you got your Bibles open and you're all attentive. But who knows how many hidden, hurting hearts there are among us here this evening. I mean, you're just like in knots inside. You feel like you're bleeding inside. Your heart's hurting. You need comfort from the Lord God. And it's important that God's people hear words of comfort from God's messenger. As one preacher put it once, I think this is a very wise statement. He said, preach to broken hearts and you'll never lack for an audience. It's true. God's people need comfort. And so when he says there in verse 2, speak comfort to Jerusalem, it means that Jerusalem needed a word of comfort. And this means that God had comfort to give them. Friends, let me tell you that God's comfort is not a hollow, positive thinking, you know, there's a silver lining behind every cloud kind of message. That gets awfully old and, and threadbare after a while. God always gives his people reasons for comfort. It's not just a, well, look up, things might get better. But not only does God give intelligent comfort, he also gives tender comfort. When it says here in verse 2, speak comfort to Jerusalem, literally, literally, what that is in the Hebrew is speak to the heart. It's used in Genesis chapter 34 of a young man wooing his girlfriend, and how God's messengers today should speak to the heart, bringing comfort with tender words, assuring people. Do you think it's something strange in us? And it is something strange, I suppose. How we need to be persuaded of the love and the comfort of God. I mean, many of us, we just have such a hard time believing it. Now, I mean, it's easy to preach a sermon on sin and guilt, and everybody, oh, yeah, oh, amen, oh, amen. And everybody's wounded and hurting from it, but you, you, you try to persuade people about the love of God and the comfort of God and the grace of God. And for many hearts, it's very difficult for them to receive it. God's messengers have to speak with tender words and speak to the heart, as it says in verse 2. Now notice it too, it says there in verse 2, Speak comfort to Jerusalem, cry out to her, that her warfare is ended. What I think is interesting about that is that this prophetic statement, Because at the time Isaiah was saying it, their warfare was just beginning. There was still an army against them. But as far as God was concerned, her warfare has ended. That was reason for comfort, wasn't it? Isn't it fascinating that right now we're in the midst of a warfare, aren't we? You're aware of that in your Christian life? I just spoke with a pastor today on the phone. He's saying, wow, you know, we look out at our congregation, he was telling me, And he said, people are just getting hammered left and right. Just real significant warfare. He goes, you know, and we're talking about this back and forth. And and then you think of a passage like Romans 8.37 that says, we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's almost saying the battle's already over, isn't it? So what is it? Are we in a battle or is the battle already over? Well, yes, it's both. We're in the midst of the battle, but as the Lord looks, there's a certainty of our victory as we remain in Jesus Christ that we're more than conquerors. He can speak to you tonight and say, hey, the warfare's ended. Well, Lord, I'm right in the middle of the battle. Yeah, but God knows that, that as you remain in him, he's going to win. Don't worry about it. The battle still looms, but as far as it concerns the believer in Jesus Christ, her warfare is ended. That's reason for comfort. 
But notice the next point there in verse 2. That her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now again, at the moment Isaiah spoke this, Jerusalem was well aware of her sin. Isaiah spent 39 chapters pointing out the sin of Jerusalem pretty vividly. Friends, the prophet speaks of a day when comfort can be offered because her iniquity is pardoned. Now, this is real comfort to be recognized as a sinner. You're one who has iniquity. You're one who has sin, yet you're pardoned. You're not trying to pretend like you're not a sinner, that you don't have iniquity. Say, no, I am a sinner. I do have iniquity, but I've received a pardon from God. Again, this is reason for comfort. And I love the reason why the pardon's given. Did you notice that in verse 2? Some of that might have struck you when it says there at the end of it. It says, For she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, this declares to us the basis for the pardon of iniquity, that the sin has been completely paid for. I think this is a very important point. If you've heard me speak on this a dozen times before, well, tough. I think it's important to talk about Our sin is not forgiven just because God turned nice. Just because, you know, well, I'll let him off the hook. Just because, like, he's a great grandfather in the sky who's going to let the kids slide on this one. No, our sin isn't forgiven on that basis. Our sin is forgiven because it's paid for. Because the penalty was paid by the righteous work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When God forgives our sin, he's not winking at it. It's been judged in Jesus. It's been paid for by what Jesus did on the cross. And Isaiah, speaking in old covenant terminology, speaks of Jerusalem as bearing the curse for her disobedience. You know, in passages like Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord promised curses upon a disobedient Israel. And now he's saying, well, you've borne the curses. The sin's been paid for. And this is reason now, I know what word caught you in verse 2 there. It's the word double, right? You say, now I knew it. I knew God wasn't fair. Because he made them pay double for their sins. No, 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 no. Let me explain something here. And it's a fascinating insight from the original language. The Hebrew word for double there means literally to fold over, to fold in half. Now, if you take something and fold it over and fold it in half, each side corresponds to the other, right? You have one side that perfectly matches the other side. And what this means is this means a perfect correspondence between the sin and the payment. It's a perfectly appropriate payment for the sin. God wasn't making Israel pay double. He was talking about the payment in the sense of a perfectly corresponding folding over, a perfectly fitting payment for their sins. And that was exactly the payment that was needed. So my friends, that's what Jesus Christ offered for us, right? The perfect payment. The payment that exactly corresponds to our need for forgiveness. Now he goes on and he keeps speaking in these terms of comfort. Look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Did you notice it there? Isaiah speaks for the Lord's messenger who cries out to the barren places and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the idea is that the Lord is coming to his people as a triumphant king and you need to prepare the road in front of him. Well, there's a big, huge pothole in the way. Well, you don't want the king to, you know, ditch his chariot in the pothole, fill it in. You got a huge hump in the road. You know, maybe a root has grown under it or some other kind of thing has troubled the road. Well, you level it out. You got a big crooked zigzag place, straighten it out. The king is on his way. You want to prepare the roads and make it nice. And every obstacle in the way has to be removed. Of course, we know that that this is speaking in a figurative way, right? What's the road that has to be fixed up? It's, It's in our hearts, isn't it? the work that God has to do in our hearts. And I love the vivid imagery that Isaiah uses here. You know, whatever's wrong in the road has to be corrected, but the problems aren't the same everywhere. You know, here's someone over there. You've you got a valley there. It needs to be filled in. There's someone over there. They've got a, a mountain. It, it needs to be leveled out. God's work in every heart is different. Sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? You know, maybe the Lord is working on that road in our heart and he's filling in a valley. And all of a sudden, we look around and everybody else better be filling in valleys in their life, right? Well, no, maybe the Lord's cutting down a mountain in their life. Maybe the Lord's straightening a crooked path. In other words, the goal is the same, to make a highway for the Lord, but the Lord's working at a different point in every different life. And this real idea of preparation must take place in our hearts. I think the, the figure of building a road is very much like the preparation that God has to do on our hearts. You know, it's expensive to build roads. You ever hear statistics, what it costs to build a mile of freeway? Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And it's expensive. It's hard work. The work that God has to do in our hearts to prepare ourselves for him, sometimes that's hard work. It's expensive, isn't it? Both in building roads and in the work of our heart, it has to deal with many different problems in many different environments. You know, sometimes you're driving along, you're driving on a mountain road, and you just stop and you scratch your hand. How did they ever build this road, you think? And then other times you're driving through the desert and it's just miles and miles of just absolutely straight road. I mean, straight as it can be. It's just over. It looks like they just got a truck and just poured out asphalt as it was moving along. It's so straight. Well, that's a whole different condition, right? Whole different environment. I'll tell you another thing about building roads and the work that God has to do in our hearts is both of them take an expert engineer They just don't happen. Lord God knows how to engineer that highway in our hearts, doesn't he? Now, notice what happens when the way is prepared here. It says here in in verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. You see, when the way is prepared, then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You want God to reveal his glory in our lives? Well, let him prepare that work in your heart. Let him fill in the valley and take down the mountain and make smooth the crooked and, and do whatever he has to do in your life. And it's revealed without regard to nationality. If you notice it there, it says, all flesh shall see it together. This glory of the Lord that's announced here, it wasn't just going to come to Jerusalem or to Judah, but to every prepared heart. And the certainty of this word is assured because if you notice at the end of verse 5, it says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't that glorious? It's going to happen. Now, does anybody kind of hear an echo of this that maybe you've read before in Isaiah chapter 40? It's because you've been reading your New Testament. 
And this passage is quoted three separate times in the New Testament, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three Gospels directly relate this passage to the ministry of John the Baptist, saying that he very specifically, verse 3, was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Matter of fact, this was known before the birth of John the Baptist because Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was the one who said that his son would have this kind of ministry as well. And so you see this. Jesus was the coming Messiah and King, and John the Baptist's ministry was to be one of crying in the wilderness and through his message of repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. You know, so often we fail to appreciate how important the preparing work of the Lord is. Any great work of God begins with great preparation. And I don't know about you, I'd just assume skip over the preparation and get right down to the work, right? It's not how the Lord does it. The Lord wants to do a great work of preparation. Then he uses a man. Then he uses a woman greatly. And John wonderfully fulfilled this important ministry of preparing the way of the work of the Lord. Now, look at what the message of the voice in the wilderness was. That begins at verse 6. And the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Well, okay, I'll tell you what to cry. Look at verse 6. It says, all flesh is grass. And its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, the voice in the wilderness knew that he needed to deliver a message, but what's the message to deliver? Can't you just see John the Baptist reading this passage over and over, having it memorized, having it written on his heart? And as a matter of fact, the whole tone, the whole flavor of this few verses here, it shaped the message of John the Baptist. First of all, the message was of the frailty of man. All flesh is as grass. Isaiah is thinking of the same kind of geography that we have right here in Southern California. You know how it is. Maybe you, you first came into a place like Simi Valley in the wintertime. And you come and you look at the hills, and man, they're green. Wow, you go, oh, this is beautiful. Wow, this is, look, it's green everywhere. I just moved down from Oregon, and it's just as green as Oregon. Isn't this great? I mean, we got all that rain in Oregon. Of course, everything's green. Look, everything's beautiful, green here. And it looks that way for a few weeks during the winter, right? And then spring comes along, and then summer, and it heats it up, and it's not long until the hills are brown, right? Well, what happened to all that grass? It died. It's brown. It's dead. And that's how temporary the grass of the field is. Friends, that's how temporary our lives are. You say, well, <laughs> that grass doesn't even last for a season. I'm going to live for 70 or 80 years. Okay. Compare that to God. Compare that to eternity. That's about as significant as the grass lasting for a season, isn't it? That's why he says all flesh is grass. Look at how quickly and, 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 and soon it just passes away and how frail and weak man is. Even the beauty of man is fleeting. If you notice it there in verse 6, it also says, and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. Now, if you notice this too, again, very much like in certain places in California, you notice that sometimes during the year, the wildflowers are out. Oh, and it's beautiful. 
Man, you drive through this desert landscape, you've never seen so many colors. It's like a carpet of flowers all over the... Oh, isn't this great? This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I saw the Wizard of Oz and it didn't look this pretty. Wow, it's just unbelievable. Then you drive by a week later and what? It's all dead. What was beautiful while it lasted. But that's how it is. Even the beauty of man is fleeting, and it passes as quickly as the spring wildflowers. Why? You notice it here. This is, well, verse 7, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. God made it this way. Man is in this frail state. Our beauty passes so quickly because it's the pleasure of God. It's to God's glory, and it's according to his plan to see to it that man is this frail. And to have the glory of man so fleeting so that we will not trust in this earth or in the glory that this earth can bring, but only in the glory that's ours for eternity. So the message is the frailty of man. The message is also of the permanence of God and his word. Did you notice it there in verse 8? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In contrast to the frailty and to the fleeting glory of man, the word of God endures. Now, might I say that the word of our God certainly has endured. It survived centuries of manual transcription, of persecution, of ever-changing philosophies, of all kinds of critics, of neglect, both in the pulpit and in the pew. It survived doubt and disbelief, and still the word of our God stands forever. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence that Demands a Verdict, writes, and he says that the Bible was written on material that perishes, having to be copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press, but it did not diminish its style, correctness, or existence. The Bible, compared with other ancient writings, has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. It stands forever. One example, in the year 303 A.D., the Roman emperor Diocletian demanded that every copy of the scriptures in the Roman Empire be burned. And he undertook the most energetic persecution that the empire had ever seen. He tried to get every copy of the scriptures he could and burn it. And if a pastor wouldn't give up, if he wouldn't yield the copy of scriptures that the church held, then let him be executed and burn the scriptures on top of it. But he failed. 25 years later, the Roman Emperor Constantine commissioned a scholar named Eusebius to prepare 50 copies of the Bible at government expense. Then there's a story of Voltaire, the French skeptic and infidel. He died in 1778. He said that 100 years after his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into the history books and that the Bible itself would just be a forgotten book. It wasn't 50 years after his death that the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used his press in his house to produce stacks and stacks of Bibles. One commentator says this, Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. 
When the French monarch proposed a persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of the infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives. As one man put it, he said, a thousand times over the Bible, or the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed. The inscription cut on the tombstone. And the committal read... But somehow the corpse never stays put. It's because the word of God stands forever. I have to say that reading this and believing it was somewhat of rebuke to my heart. Oh, not because I don't believe that the word of God will stand forever, but sometimes I don't have my thinking consistent with that. Sometimes you look out on on the, the horizon of things and it looks bleak for the word of God. You see how the word of God is neglected in pulpits. How Christians aren't reading their word. And you think, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in years? What's going to happen in generations? I'll tell you what's going to happen. The word of our God is going to stand forever. You don't have to worry about it. Every once in a while, a big stink comes up. You know, remember it was uh, years and years ago, this this movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh my gosh, that was going to be it for the gospel, wasn't it? Man, that was going to raise a stink. And oh, oh, the opera, oh, the whole hum about that movie. Here we are today. There's probably more people in this room right now looking at their Bibles. They never saw that stupid movie. And you come week after week. Isn't it amazing how the word of our God stands forever? Well, that was the message of John the Baptist. You're going to pass away, but the word of God is going to stand. So get right with God. And people did. They did in huge numbers. Now it continues on here in verse 9. It's just glorious. He says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, man, whatever this is, this is great news. See what he's saying? He's saying, get up on top of a mountain and shout it out. Shout it from the mountains. Let everybody know. Get this message out. Well, what's this message? It's so great. It's at the very end of verse 9. Did you see it? Behold your God. Isn't that fantastic? Behold your God. Boy, you'd say that to Christians today and many would go, yeah, and then what? No, that is the message. Behold your God. Look at your God. See how great he is. See how glorious he is. Draw yourself in a marvelous fellowship with your God. It's an invitation for you to do the greatest thing that a believer can do, and that's to study and know your God. The message isn't to give God a passing glance. No, it's to study. It's to behold your God. It speaks of a study, of a long-term mission, to know the greatness and the character of our God. By the way, just by inference, I should say that it shows us how important it is for the message of God's preacher to focus on God. After every sermon, the preacher should ask himself, did I help the people to behold their God? That's what's important. Look at God. Don't look at me. Don't look at the things around. Look at God. 
You know, there was a great philosopher named Alexander Pope who once wrote some very famous lines. You find them in books of quotations. He said, Know then thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. In other words, this philosopher named Alexander Pope is saying, Well, don't bother looking at God. You can't know God anyway. We're men. Study man. In one sermon, Charles Spurgeon replied to that famous statement, and this is what he said. He said, it's been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe that it's equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the intention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. So he just says it. Behold your God. Look at him. And then he goes on, he tells you all the things you can behold about the Lord. Look at it, first of all, verse 10. Behold the returning Lord. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. One aspect of our God that we should behold is the fact of his return. Our God is going to return and he's coming with power, with a strong hand. His arm is going to rule. And when the Lord comes back, well, he's going to come to reward his people. Did you notice it there? His reward is with him and he's coming to inspect his work. His work is before him. And friends, if there really is a God in heaven, and if he really is returning to this earth, and if he really is going to reward his faithful and inspect the work of his people, shouldn't you know that about the Lord? Isn't that something you'd want to know? If the boss was coming, going to come back and give a bonus to everybody in the office who was working hard, and he was going to review everybody's work while he was away, don't you think you'd want to know? Or would you rather just be playing games on the computer when the boss walked in? No, you'd want to know. So you need to behold that about the Lord. But that's not all. Look at it here, verse 11. You need to behold the loving shepherd. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You like that verse, don't you? I mean, there's something about that that says, yeah, there's a sweetness there, tenderness. There's a power in the glory and in the sympathetic care of our God that we need. The Lord's our loving shepherd. You know, the first thing that a shepherd must do for his sheep is feed them. And the Lord feeds us like a shepherd feeds his flock. You know, sheep have to be directed to the good pasture. They must be moved on to new pasture when they strip the grass bare. That's how carefully the Lord has to direct us. He has to feed us like you feed sheep. He didn't liken us to, to dolphins or collies or nice intelligent animals. It's sheep. You've got to feed us like you feed sheep. It's not a particularly a compliment, folks. Charles Spurgeon said that no creature has less power to take care of itself than the sheep. Even the tiny ant with its foresight can provide for the evil day. 
but this poor creature must be tended by man or else perish. You know, an ant can take better care of himself than a sheep can. We're the sheep. He's got to feed us. You know, isn't it fascinating that God loves to identify himself with shepherds? Realize that many of the greatest men of the Bible were shepherds, and their character as shepherds points to Jesus Christ. Abel, he was a shepherd, and he points to Jesus, the sacrifice shepherd. Jacob is a picture of Jesus, the working shepherd. Joseph is a picture of Jesus, the persecuted and exalted shepherd. Moses is a picture of Jesus, the calling out from Egypt shepherd. And David is a picture of Jesus, the shepherd king. And what does he do? He doesn't only feed the sheep. Look at it there in verse 11. He will gather the lambs with his arm. Isn't it beautiful? He shows special care for the lambs, for the youngest, for the weakest. They're not despised. They're given special care by the Lord who first actively gathers them. Then he carries them in his bosom. You might feel like you're a weak Christian. You step into the doors of the church, you feel kind of guilty already. You know, you're a weak Christian. You're just one of the weak lambs of God's flock. He loves you. He wants to gather the lambs in his arms. He wants to hold them tightly to his chest. Isn't that beautiful? That's not normally how a shepherd would carry a sheep. Normally a shepherd would carry a sheep. He'd get that sheep and he'd hoist it up and carry it back on his shoulders, right? That's how he'd carry a sheep. No, not this shepherd. He gathers the lambs. He holds them tight to his chest. It's a place of love. It's a place of protection, right? Nobody's going to bother that lamb when it's right there in the shepherd's arm, are they? Lord's weak lamb tonight. The Lord doesn't despise you. He wants to cradle you in his arms. He wants to show you a safe place, a tender place. He wants to draw you close to a place of love. But that's not all. Look at it there, verse 11. He'll feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs with his arm. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now that shepherd has a rod and a staff, right? And he knows how to give a nice crack on the back to the sheep when it needs it. Don't worry about that. But he gently leads those who are with young. He knows exactly when to be gentle. He knows exactly when more severe guidance should be used. So friends, behold your God. Behold the returning Lord. Behold the loving shepherd. Now behold the God over all creation. Look at it there in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. He's weighed the mountain and scales and the hills in the balance. You know, another aspect of our God to behold is his authority over all creation. God is so great and so dominant over all creation that he's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. What do they say that? Earth is 70% covered by water, something like that. You take all that water, and what does the Lord do with it? He cups it in his hand right there. That's how big our God is. Now, please, let's remember, we're using what we can call, and here's your 25-cent word for the night, anthropomorphism. Wow, you're impressed, aren't you? Don't be, I've got it written down right here. An anthropomorphism is when we speak of God in human terms so that we can partially understand who he is and what he does. 
God is not a being with a body of a giant so big. I mean, this is how big God is that all the waters of the earth could be cupped in his little hand. No. No. He's not so big that the universe could be measured in the span of his hand. That's the distance between his thumb and his middle finger. No, the Bible tells us that God the Father is a spirit. So he does not have a body as we know it. But we understand exactly what the Lord tells us through the prophet Isaiah. That God is so great, so dominant over all creation that we should stand in awe of his power and his glory. You know, once my youngest son and I were in a discussion about who in our family was bigger. He observed that his big brother was bigger than he was. And that... His older sister was bigger than his big brother. And that mom was bigger than the sister. We settled it right then that dad was the biggest in the family. And then he looked at me and he, and he said, but you're not bigger than God. Now that's something for everybody to remember, isn't it? You're not bigger than God. It's not just about Size, though, it's about smarts, too. Look at it there in verse 12. He calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. God is so great in his wisdom and in his intelligence that that he, he calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. God knows exactly how many grains of dust there are in the earth. Now, even if a person knew the number of hairs on their head, which God knows, right? For some people, it's easier than others to know the number of hairs on their head. How many of you could calculate the numbers of grains of dust in your house, much less in the whole ro- in the whole world? God knows it. God knows how heavy the mountains are. Look at it there in verse twelve. He weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. God knows it. So we behold the returning Lord. We behold the loving Shepherd. We behold the God who dominates over all creation. And then we behold the God of all wisdom. That's verses 13 and 14. He says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? Or with whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Well, you see, God needs no counsel, no instruction, no teacher, no one to show him the way of understanding. You know, you could have all the intelligence of the world, right? Well, I know exactly how many grains of dust there are in the world. I know exactly how heavy all the mountains are. But if you don't have the wisdom to use it, what good is it? Well, God has the wisdom too. So we stand back and we behold our God, the returning Lord, the loving shepherd, the God over all creation. It's a beautiful, powerful thing, this God of all wisdom. Now, a lot of times you don't realize how great somebody is until you start comparing them to something else, right? I think Isaiah's thinking maybe we're a little bit thick-headed. Maybe we don't have the message yet of how great our God is. So he's going to do some comparisons. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are as counted as the small dust on the balance. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Think of a nation flexing its muscle, you know, a huge military parade. There they are, you know, it's May Day in Moscow 25 years ago. And there you got thousands of Red Army troops marching down the streets of Moscow, missiles and tanks, and it's all mighty, and it's 
pageantry and what it displayed. Man, this nation's mighty. Wow, the pomp and the glory. God looks at that and he goes, you know what? That's like a drop in a bucket to me. Who cares? It's nothing to God. These things that we get so impressed about, the glory of nations, the the glory of, of nationalism, well, God doesn't care about it. No, it's all God's thinking. That's just as as a drop in the bucket compared to the greatness and the glory of the Lord God. Matter of fact, the Lord says, if you were to take all the wood in the mighty forest of Lebanon and use it to make a big bonfire and then take all the animals and, and sacrifice them to God, that's not enough for God. He's bigger than that. They're just counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. So compared to the nations, you can't even compare God to the nations. He's surpassing them by far. Oh, how about idols? Look at verses 18 to 20. This is great. To whom will you then liken God? Or to what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds a graven image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever's too imparvous for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skilled workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Well, this is how you handle your idols, right? Well, you go out and you contract with a goldsmith or with a silversmith. Make me a nice idol. Well, but what if you're a little down in the pocket there? You know, you need a little help. Well, you go out and you do it yourself. And so well, you go out and you, you pick a nice tree. Right, you, you need a nice tree. For heaven's sakes, you know, who, who wants to get a rotting piece of wood? Who wants a rotting God? You're going to bow down and worship this thing. Go ahead, pick a nice tree. Pick a good piece of wood. Then for heaven's sakes, choose a skilled workman. Who wants to bow down before poorly designed God, right? That's what it says there in verse 20. It seeks for himself a skillful work. Get a good craftsman. You don't want to be disappointed by the workmanship of this God that you're going to worship. And then finally it says, prepare a carved image that will not totter. Well, for heaven's sakes, design it well. You can't have the God that you're worshiping falling over on you. Why? It's not like a little weeble doll that's going to wobble but not fall down. You can't have that. It's got to have some dignity to it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? All the care and the concern that you have to put into creating your God. Oh, friends, there's no comparison. You see the humor in Isaiah here. He's enjoying mocking the folly of idolatry. No, but God's greatness is evident. Look at verse 21. This is spectacular. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely they shall be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To who then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. I love how he begins this section. Did you see that in verse 21? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? I mean, in our own colloquialism, it's like God saying, Hello? 
Don't you understand this? Can you look out upon this incredible universe and think that it just happened? What, didn't anybody tell you? Didn't anybody tell you that a magnificent design must have a designer? So, a couple weeks ago, Ingle and I were flying back from San Antonio. And we're talking to a guy sitting next to us on the plane. First of all, don't you hate preachers that start stories like that? It sounds really lame. But it's true. We're sitting next to this fellow. And my wife struck up the conversation with the guy. You know, I'm kind of introverted and grumpy on things like that. But Ingalil's much more warm and outgoing than myself. And so she's having a conversation with the fellow. And she's turning it to talking to the guy about the Lord. And this guy was an atheist. You don't meet many real atheists out there, but he was one. Now, he was the kind atheist. He explained very well that he thought religion was fine for people. You know what? If it made you a better person, if it made you happy, fine. But he made it very clear that as far as he was concerned, there was no objective truth behind it. None. But if you want to believe in your little fairy tale and it does good for you, God bless you. Well, whatever God there is, bless you. Wonderful. But he was absolutely convinced that there wasn't a God. And so I butted in somewhere along. And I tried to just talk about it from the whole position of design. I mean, Ingalil had, had very well tried a few different tacks with the guy, the way you tried. And, you know, this guy, this guy was tough. So I, I tried the argument from design, which to me is absolutely compelling. How can you have an elaborate design without a designer? I said, look at this airplane. I mean, this airplane is very intricate. I mean, it has all the parts working there. We're counting on the design of this airplane. Now, what, what would you think if I told you that this thing just appeared out in the middle of the desert? And you'd say, well, you know, of course not. And I said, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of brilliant, dedicated men and women who worked together to, to create this thing. It was designed expertly. And the evidence of design is all over it. Well, yes. I said, well, don't you understand that even what we call the simplest cell isn't simple at all. And it's more complex. If you don't want to say a cell, just say the human body. The human body is far more complex in a comparative sense, almost infinitely more complex than this airplane. And you're telling me that the airplane couldn't have come about without a designer, but the human body did. And he couldn't see it. He could not see it. When I read this in Isaiah, you know, you just want to go back and shout it to the fellow. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It just can't happen, friend. You, know, you can talk about all the evidences for God, and believe me, there's many. But obviously, one of the most striking ones has to be the one that Isaiah brings up right here. We have a created world of incredible order and design. I'd recommend a book to you if you're kind of feeling in an egghead kind of mood. It's by a guy named Michael Behe, and it's titled Darwin's Black Box. And Michael Behe is a microbiologist. And he 
goes about and, and studies the simplest kind of cells and the simplest kind of biochemical reactions. And what he points out, he goes, these things are not simple at all. The idea that somehow, just by chance or something, a simple cell could have created itself, friends, there is no such thing as a simple living organism. No such thing. Even what we consider to be the most basic, simple living organism is incredibly complex. It just couldn't happen without a designer, without someone to design it. Haven't you heard? Then you notice it in verse 22, didn't you? Where it says, who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, how could Isaiah know that the world was round? Now, you know what? I think maybe Isaiah didn't know, but the Lord did. The Lord who was inspiring him did. Maybe Isaiah didn't even know what he was writing when he said the circle of the earth. Maybe Isaiah was locked into the you know, flat earth cosmology that may have been present at the time, but the Lord knew. So the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah and said the circle of the earth. Isn't that wonderful? Flat earth society, forget it. You're not biblical. It says the Lord sits on the circle of the earth or above the circle of the earth. Then he goes on and he says here, verse 23, he brings the, the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. God's power and glory is not only exalted above the inanimate creation, but also men of power on the earth. You know, whenever people have political power, that's the princes. Or whenever they have the legal power, that's the judges. It's easy for them to think of themselves as gods. Through the message of Isaiah, the Lord sets this straight. What does God have to do to make the princes and the judges wither away? Look at it. Blow on them. That's what it says. Verse 24, Scarcely they shall be planted, scarcely they shall be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he also will blow on them and they will wither. That's it. Just poof, they're gone. Now God is so mighty, so powerful, that look at what he does here in verse 26. This is great. Lift up your eyes on high and see who's created these things, right? What he's saying is, look up at the starry sky and look at who created all these things, who brings out their host by number. See all those stars up there? Literally, there are billions and billions of stars in the sky. God calls them all by number. Oh, that one? He'll tell you it's numbered. And this one and this one. He's got them all numbered. No problem. And then he says, verse 26, he calls them all by name. Well, he doesn't have a number for them all, but God's personal. He has a name for them all. Every star has a name for God. In, in, by God, I should say. Isn't that marvelous? Now, for the last several verses of this chapter, perhaps are the best. Because now we get to apply this great news. Look at it here, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Now, do you see it here? In all of Isaiah 40, he showed us the greatness and the glory of God. Now Isaiah shows us how understanding this should make a difference in our lives. Now, beyond the obvious, 
No, sometimes when you talk about a passage like this, and it just tells how great, how glorious God is, how mighty, how powerful he is, you know, so, well, how does this apply to my life? Okay, well, number one, you should get down on your knees and worship him. Right? I mean, isn't that enough application right there? He's God. Surrender your life to him. That's the application. But you want something even more? Okay, fine. He'll give us more. Some people have been saying, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God. I think God has lost sight of me. God doesn't see everything I'm going through. God doesn't know it all. You know what Isaiah says? He says, you're wrong. I understand he may feel that way, but you're wrong. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Now, this question was already asked in verse 21, right? Those were for people who didn't know there was a God. And Isaiah says, have you not known? Have you not heard? But now, here in verse 26, or excuse me, verse 28, when he asks the question, it's not to people who don't know there's a God, but it's to the people who are the practical atheists. You know the difference between a theological atheist and a practical atheist? A theological atheist will say there is no God. And then he lives accordingly. A practical atheist says, oh no, I believe in God. And then he lives like there is no God. Now, year after year, opinion surveys say that 90, 95, 98% of Americans believe that there is a God. How many of them live like there's a God? That's the message of Isaiah right here. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to believe in the infinite power of God and then at the same time feel that he's unable to meet my needs? Friends, he's more than able. No, the practical atheists need to hear what they already know. Look at it there in verse 28. The creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. Some who really believed these truths about God should live as if God was really there. So, first of all, you've got to understand that God's there and he does make the difference in your life. Not just believing it in your head, but in your life. But then last of all, look at it here in verse 29 through 31. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail, or excuse me, utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isn't this spectacular? You see, all through this chapter, he spent the time telling you how great God is, how glorious he is. All the waters of the earth, it's right there in the palm of his hand, right? The greatest of the men of the earth, he just... Blows him away. The majesty of the nations, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket to the Lord. This is how great. This is how strong. This is how glorious the Lord is. And now at the end of the chapter, he says, I want to give you some of my strength. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? This great strength of God. He says, I want to give you some of it. Think of somebody who has a lot of something. How about Bill Gates, right? A lot of money, right? Billions of dollars. Now, we could talk all day about the wealth of Bill Gates. Wow, he's so rich, he's so rich. Look at how much money he makes a minute. Look at how much money he makes a day. Wow, so on and so forth. It's another thing altogether if Bill Gates comes to you and says, I want to give you some of my wealth. Then you really start getting excited, don't you? 
the same way with the strength of God. Not only does he have this strength, he looks at you tonight and he says, he gives power to the weak. And so who does he give it to? Look at there in verse 29. This is your qualification. You want to receive strength from God tonight? Who does he give it to? He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. So anybody here strong tonight, you're disqualified. Anybody here plenty full on your own might level, sorry, you're going to walk away empty tonight. But if you're weak, if you have no might, he'll give you his strength. He'll give it to you tonight. Well, matter of fact, even the youths shall faint and be weary. Those who thought themselves strong will find themselves weak. God's strength is reserved for those who know they are weak and know that they have no might. So how do we receive it? How do we receive this strength from the Lord? Check it out there. You saw it there in verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. We receive it as we wait on the Lord. Now, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Some people think waiting on the Lord means like you wait in the dentist's office for that appointment. You sit around and just kind of busy yourself with Highlights magazine until they call your name, right? You know, you look at the hidden picture, goofus and gallant, you know, uh, uh, the timber toes, everything in there in the highlights. And you're just looking at it all, and you're just waiting. All right, Lord, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. That's not waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord in the sense that it's used here is an active serving. It's a giving of your full attention to. You're ever there at a really fancy dinner? And and the, the help doesn't just stop by every once in a while and ask how everything's going. They stand at your table and they watch you. And they just kind of hover over you. And the water glass gets low. What do they do? They come right along and they fill it up. You're done with one plate. Done with that salad plate. You don't have to, excuse me, can you come? No, they just come right away and they pick it up. That's how it is. They're waiting on you. Now, they're not just sitting around saying, I can't wait till this guy's done so I can clear the thing and clear the plate. No, they're giving their full attention to you. And whatever you need, whatever you do, wherever you're going, they're right there with you. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. To look at Him. To seek Him. To give your full attention to Him. And when you do that, you're going to renew your strength. Now notice it says renew your strength. It's not so much receive it as for the first time. No, it's to change, to bring fresh, to keep putting on fresh strength. That's what the Lord wants you to have. And then how much strength? will mount up with wings like eagles. Why? So you can run and not be weary and walk and not faint. That's for progress, isn't it? That's to go forward. The strength isn't to enter into some Mr. Universe contest and flex your muscles and aren't I strong? No! It's strength to go forward, to move on, to soar, to walk, to run. That's why God gives us the strength. Let me conclude with this last point. Did the order seem strange to you? Look at it there in verse 31. Maybe you never thought about this. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. All right, we're clear on that. Mount up with wings as eagles. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. It seems like it goes from the greater to the lesser, right? Doesn't it seem like you should start out walking and then run? And then maybe soar up with the eagles? 
No. God says, no, that's not how I want it. First, I want you to soar up into heavenly places in Christ Jesus, because that's where I placed you. Soar up there. That's where you need to go. That's where it starts out. You've been placed in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. You're in him. Soar up there first. That's the problem. You've been trying to run. You've been trying to walk before you've soared up into the heavenly places. No, you start there. Then you go out and run. You run the race that's set before you determine yourself to serve God and to follow him. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, casting off every weight, setting out to run the race that's set before you. You determine yourself to, to, to go on that course. And then finally, you're in the good place to walk the walk, the, the walk that is the Christian life, right? So the order makes perfect sense. First you soar, then you run, then you can walk the walk. That's how the Lord wants it to be in our lives. Friends, do you need strength tonight? Let's call out to the Lord right now and ask him to give it to us. Father, we know that in the moment of prayer that we take right now, that this is just a small, small part of what it really means to wait on you. But I pray, God, that you'd light a fire, a passion in every heart here right now this evening to seek you, to spend time with you, to wait on you, and to receive your strength. Lord, if it's not going to be my by, by might nor by power, but by your Spirit, then it's going to be done with your strength. So Lord, fill us tonight. But as much as anything, fill us for a hunger to wait on you, that we would receive your strength. Lord, there's no other appropriate response for us to make when we see how great you are. Praise you, Lord. We give you honor and glory this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.